What's up, guys? Welcome to the Humans of MarTech podcast. His name is John Taylor. My name is Phil Gamash. Our mission is to future-proof the humans behind the tech so you can have a successful and happy career in marketing. What's up, everyone? Today on the show, we are celebrating episode number 100. And we are incredibly pumped to chat with the legendary Sarah McNamara, Senior Manager, Marketing Operations at Salesforce. Sarah got her start at Cloud on Tap as a Salesforce Pardot Marketing Automation Consultant, where she completed 30 plus Pardot implementations in under two years. She took her ops talents to Cheshire Impact, a select Pardot and Salesforce partner, before moving to an in-house automation manager role, administrating three instances of Pardot. Her journey led her to a pivotal role at Cloudera, an open source data platform for enterprise, where she was quickly promoted to senior marketing operations manager after leading two enterprise marketing automation migrations in under six months. She's advised marketing leaders at companies like Google and PayPal on how to find and attract the best MOPS talents. She's also a member of three key communities like Rev Genius, Women in Revenue, and Pavilion. She holds over 30 plus licenses and certifications across popular MarTech, and her work has been recognized by Pardot, Salesforce, Drift, and many others. And when Cloudera was on the exit ramp, Sarah made a mega move to Slack as Senior Manager of Marketing Transformation and Innovation. She had a big job shaping things up at massive scale, but after a year of making waves there, Salesforce swept in and bought Slack. That meant Sarah's Salesforce.com slash Pardot hot takes and spicy industry insights came to an end but let's be clear, Sarah's brilliance has, hasn't has dimmed one bit. If you're navigating the murky waters of MOPS or crafting your own career path, she's your North Star. She's not just a source of marketing knowledge. She's arguably the finest guidepost for out there for career insights. Sarah, thanks so much for making our 100th episode extra special and taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm such a fan of the podcast and like, wow, what a what a nice intro. I feel like everyone needs that all the time, especially in like the like podcast voice and just add something. <laughs> Phil's intros are next level. I, I want an intro from Phil one day myself, but uh, Sarah's so, so I, happy. I need to... a recording. Sorry, I need a recording just so I can like play it every morning as I like go to work. <laughs> <laughs> the hype up, man. Way to go, Phil. Great work. Sarah, it's so awesome to have you here on, on our 100th episode. We're talking in uh, kind of the waiting room. Uh, you had a huge influence in terms of my own career and uh, the early compensation uh, surveys that you released and definitely like a top five influencer to follow on LinkedIn to get great insights about the industry. Um, speaking about like on LinkedIn, I've seen two posts recently uh, where you talked about data skills. This is something that's fascinating to me as we're entering into the era of AI and and MarTech. Um uh, just explosion. I'm curious in terms of um, looking at the future and looking at the skill sets that people are looking to acquire. I'm really into like this idea of transferable skill sets. Like you can grab a skill from one place, but maybe bring that skill somewhere else. What steps would you recommend for marketers who are looking to improve their data literacy? And as a leader, how can you effectively like foster that data informed culture within your team? And maybe as like an extra addendum to this is what transferable skills do you think are like the most important, like for year one, like what transferable skills, what kind of things are you, would you recommend people think about? Yeah, it's, it's a huge topic. And it was interesting. Um, the post that I made about data skills being so important got very spicy. 
because mm-hmm. so many people are like, well, what about AI? AI is going to do all analytics. <laughs> I think maybe like I, I bet eventually, but I don't think I think it's going to take years for it to be able to honestly just even like interpret what marketing wants to understand. Right. Because like I, I made another post that was joking about like there's no chance we'll be replaced by AI until marketing knows what they actually want to do or what they need to do. <laughs> like it's just it's like what it's like that little um from the notebook Ryan Gosling like what do you want is like a lot of the job. <laughs> um but yeah in terms of of data it really comes down to running marketing as a business. So I don't think about it so much as you need to learn these like very specific languages or these very specific tools that really depends upon what type of business you're in and what tools your business uses right so like a lot of people say i need to learn tableau but if their business uses power bi that's kind of i mean luckily they're similar so it's not totally wasted but i would look at what your business is specifically using and what tools you like to use the most and and learn those but even backing up from that it's all about being able to like, I, I don't want to be dependent upon another analytics team to be able to answer simple questions like, was this campaign effective? Mm-hmm. You know, looking at like attribution, where should we be spending more money in terms of like channels? Where should we be decreasing the amount of money we're spending? Um, things like, so so it's not to replace a data scientist. Like I don't, I don't think that marketing apps should become a team of just data scientists or spending that much time on that. I think it's more of being able to get dirty enough that like for the big picture things, then we can leverage data scientist teams to really work on those. But for just like, I'll, I'll work with organizations where they'll be like, oh, we need to understand if this campaign was effective, got to submit a ticket with the marketing analytics team. And then we're just waiting for weeks. And then usually even then it's like, there's like a back and forth of translation about how, like what the data means. Because a lot of times the analytics team is centralized within like revenue operations or like biz tech or IT. So I think the closer you can get to the people who know the data for those like little scrappy reports where you just need to get quick answers to know what to do or ongoing dashboards that you want to have handy, it's good to have that skill set to be able to do it yourself or at least like even if AI is able to create the dashboard to be able Mm -hmm. to scrutinize it and say, did it do it right? Like not just to trust it like blindly to be able to look at the back end and be like, okay, this looks right. Like directionally, this is, this is something that I can trust. Yeah, definitely agree. I think uh, you, you double down on that importance of for marketers to just have like broad knowledge. And, and you talked about like understanding how to figure out the effectiveness of, of a campaign. And you mentioned attribution there. Um, this has always been like a, a hot topic for for me in my career. Like I've, I've seen attribution endeavors at startup versus uh, bigger companies and, and enterprises like WordPress. In B2B especially, like this is increasingly complicated with the multiple buyers involved in that decision. In your opinion, like what's the ideal way for marketers to tackle attribution? Uh, I, I know you're coming from a bit more on the enterprise lens, but I know you like uh, consult and, and, and work with smaller teams as well. Like you said it yourself that attribution is directional and not necessarily this precise science. Like, what's your take here? Is it first touch, last touch, influence on pipeline, incremental reporting and experiments, multi-touch attribution, marketing, mixed modeling, self-reporting? Like, what's what's your ideal way to go about this? 
I, it's interesting because I think a few years ago, this take was controversial. But now when I say this might be a controversial take, everyone's like, we agree. And I'm like, oh, never mind. <laughs> um, I think attribution is directional. I, I've, I've been at companies where we've had the resources to like have a group of data scientists spend hours and hours with so many resources trying to figure out like, what is the golden path? What is the, you know, the one or like up to maybe five paths that a, a lead takes to become a customer. And what we discovered after like a year was that there's no golden path that we like basically the findings were these channels, like chances are if someone comes in as a lead and then they convert, they've touched like one of these three channels, maybe like webinars, email events. Um, but especially like, I remember in that case, webinars, it, it was very insightful to see how many converted like customers had attended a webinar before converting. So we could say, oh, this is a channel we really want to invest in because we see that trend. But I, I just don't think it's worth, like I have this phrase I like to use, like, is the juice worth the squeeze? I just don't see it being worth the squeeze to spend too much time on it. And then there's also the opportunity cost of, okay, you're focusing so much time and energy on attribution to try to perfect it. Probably not going to happen. And then what are all the other things you can be doing instead? Um, like experimenting new channels, um, like creating more campaigns and the channels that you know directionally perform. Um, so I, and then something else that I like to call out is I really try to avoid getting to the point where marketing is using attribution to justify their existence. Mm -hmm. Like, I hate to see it. If, <laughs> if I see that, it's just so saddening because in my experience, that's more of a cultural like relationship issue than something you're going to even solve through attribution. Usually what I see once you get to that point is that it just becomes like a blame game of like, how do we adjust the data to either prove that sales is more legitimate or marketing is more legitimate and anything you come up with, it's like people want to refute it anyways, because it's more of like an emotional issue at that point. So that's something else I try to call out is just, it's not, it's not going to solve a relational issue. If the trust is broken, work, work with the people first. You're not going to solve it by like proving something right off the bat. Yeah, totally echo with those uh, sentiments. Uh, gone down the the path of building out that juice to figure out what the the squeeze was, and yeah, uh, oftentimes like you're just like getting uh, like an understanding of like what your your hypothesis was, what your your gut feeling was in the first place, and it just like reinforces that like yeah, okay, we're we're doing the right thing. We should be doing. We haven't really gained any like incredible insights with with all of the effort that that we've spent here, but like. Like my follow-up was like, is attribution even worth it for for smaller companies? Like I'm I'm guessing that you're gonna say no, but like instead I'll ask you, like, where should people start? Like if if I'm at a startup and like we've got GTM set up and like I can figure out people coming in from email, if they land on the site and they convert in the product, I can see with UTM codes like how that's kind of working. Like how how do you recommend folks to see the effectiveness of their campaigns? I always say start simple. And then also have a few different views. Like you'll, at least in my experience, I've found that different models can answer different questions. So first touch model, where are leads coming from? Last touch model, where do we, like, what are the, what's the last thing they're touching before they convert? Now don't go too crazy with that because I mean, there are many other touches that could just be a, a coincidence, right? Like we want to look for a trend. 
but but if you have a few different views, and I also like W shape model, if you can fit that in there as well to get a sense of like more of the journey. But I just it's it's all directional. I think keep it simple. Like I always say, start out of the box in Salesforce, honestly, with or or like whatever tool you have, if they have an out of the box, like first touch, last touch, even like equally weighted model, just to kind of get in the motion of trying to track that. And then you kind of mature over time. I want to ask a question about building versus buying MarTech. And I think this is kind of interesting to to build off of our attribution conversation, just given how much effort goes into the data analysis and uh, the effort to, to kind of get these insights out. I know with, um, I just recently read a post on from Casey Winters, former CPO at Eventbrite and instructor at Reforge on his personal blog where he talks about the problems with MarTech and why MarTech is actually for engineers. Like he argues that MarTech is a response to engineering constraints. MarTech will likely decline due to competition from in-house engineers and platform limitations. Successful MarTech companies are essentially catering to engineers, not marketers. This shift is caused by the rise of in-house engineers who can create tailored solutions for their companies and targeting engineering needs uh, can be beneficial strategies for MarTech companies. I'll just interject here, like in terms of my own uh, consulting practice, I run into a lot of companies are switching from like traditional CMSs like WordPress and Drupal into like headless CMS. And this rings true to me where the engineering teams are very much in charge of the tech stack and the data, and they're building out, you know, user interfaces for the content teams to interact with quite complicated software like a headless CMS is much different in terms of the tech from Word from a WordPress instance. So I'm just curious on your te- uh, take on this. Is MarTech actually for engineers? Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that article. That was like fascinating uh, to read. This one is a tricky one in the sense that with that statement, like I, I, I see the trend. I see the trend of engineering becoming more involved and creating more custom solutions. That being said, I have a lot of skepticism around the idea that marketing operations teams are just going to become a bunch of engineers for a few reasons. Um, And I mean, I could be proven wrong if some of like the cultural things change surrounding this. But um, first of all, like a lot of the engineers I've worked with cannot stand the chaos of marketing. Like they, you're going to always need some kind of middle person at least who knows marketing, who can kind of like be that translator between what, like the chaos of what marketers think they want or what they think they need versus what needs to be built. Like they typically don't, they just want to like get the information right and then build and then not necessarily be involved in all of like, oh, what about this? What about that? What about this? Oh, we changed our mind again. Oh, what about this? (laughs) Um, Which I feel like is at a fever pitch in marketing just because of the nature of the job is just reacting to a lot of different things in the market. I also, just in my experience, working with companies that have their own homegrown solutions, it's it's not very scalable. It is hard to recruit talent to manage it. And then also engineers are super expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, so like all of those things together I see as potential roadblocks. It's interesting because a lot of the larger companies have their own homegrown things like a homegrown CRM. Like you wouldn't Mm -hmm. believe they have a lot of just custom stuff, but then they'll tell me time and time again, they're like, well, how do I recruit marketing ops people? Because no one wants to take this job because it's not transferable, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? It's like our own little thing that's very eccentric and it's just, it's hard to recruit people 
And then engineers, like I said, I just, I find that challenge of they'll at least need someone to be that kind of like that layer Mm -hmm. between marketers and engineers. But I do agree with the overall sentiment that a lot like marketing operations is becoming a lot more complex and there are many more custom solutions. Like even my team, we work with engineers all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, maybe as a follow-up, like, and, and this is just a trend I've noticed in my own career, like over the last 10, 15 years, more and more engineers and software developers work side by side with marketing and, and much more closely, sometimes even hired into the marketing department. But you kind of touched on something that I'm curious if you've noticed as a trend, many software developers and engineers who come into marketing often do it as a tour of duty to, to go on to this, the product team or something like that. So yeah, it's actually really hard in my experience, at least, and maybe yours too, to find an engineer who wants to live with marketing long-term. And that's what marketers need, people who understand these systems like the back of their hands. That's what I'm saying. It's 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 tolerated, not love, in my experience. <laughs> I mean, I even say for, I even say for marketing operations, like it takes a special kind of crazy, right? Like to want to work with marketing. <laughs> and I say that with so much love for marketers. Like I hope no one takes that the wrong way, but it's just like it's just such a chaotic, it's not as organized as other environments. Yeah, definitely. I, I came from the startup world for like six or seven years and like marketing operations and like demand gen and SEO, like they're, they're all part of the same hat, like tiny team of like three or four marketers. But when I joined WordPress.com, a 7,000 person company at automatic, I like was quickly in awe by like just the size of the marketing team. We were like 300 plus people and there was a 40 person dedicated MarTech team. And most of the people on the MarTech team were all engineers. Um, like the backend technical SEO team was all engineers. Uh, we had a ton of like homegrown uh, MarTech stuff. Like we had our own internal CDP solution. We had our own internal ESP. And I totally resonate with what you said. Like the folks there want to build and they're excited about building, but uh, first of all, they've never used ESPs or marketing automation platforms or like CDPs. So like they don't have that use case angle of like, why are we building this? Like, what is the path to something usable for folks? And so, yeah, like it, it just like, it, it didn't feel like a natural fit to me and uh, much prefer working uh, now today at like my startup. I have like a data team that, you know, works super closely with me on building a composable CDP. And, you know, I, I get to like play the role of what are the use cases that we're trying to build? Like, this is why I need real-time data so that I can power this personalized uh, experiment or this campaign. So I feel like that works a bit better than having an in-house team of engineers doing MarTech, knowing that like, you know, they're kind of mostly all allergic to marketing in the first place. And then they're not feeling super fulfilled, like working on MarTech when they could be part of the product team. (laughs) Well, and the product team tends to get a lot more love and funding too, right? Like like that's another issue that marketing faces is budget wise. It can be a challenge. Um, So I think they like typically aren't going to get paid as much either. So unless that perception changes, I think that could be another potential challenge. Yeah, definitely. You also said earlier that like, it'll be interesting to see like how many data scientists and, um, you know, like just like data engineers end up 
moving over into marketing ops or if that's always going to be the data team working with marketing ops but like with like all the ai hype right now like it is impossible to get through a podcast or, or a team meeting or, or anything without talking about ai these days and you you did mention this already but like you've humorously pointed out that replacing marketing ops with ai will be impossible because it demands stakeholders to be exceedingly clear about what their needs are and that's constantly changing but you've also shared uh, a really solid guide on how to evaluate ai tools uh emphasizing aspects like you know free proof concept to to use this in your own data set uh doing customer validation composability like using this on top of your own data checking to see if it's a proprietary model if this is just like something built on top of gpt and understanding like how that that tool is built right my favorite tip in there is the backend overview side of what you mentioned, like dive into the product docs or get a technical person on that sales demo call instead of just getting the take from the salesperson. Like if that thing is just built on top of GPT-4 and it'll become redundant with GPT-N, like how valuable really is that thing? But yeah, like uh, I'd love your take, like given the things, like things that have been around forever, like send time optimization, automated lead scoring, um, natural language processing and like sentiment analysis and ML propensity models, like all those things have been around for years. And most like marketing automation platforms have, if not already, like made that part of the the solution. What are some of like the new categories that Sarah's excited about in, in the MarTech area uh, when it comes to like AI advancements? This is going to be like an interesting answer in the sense a lot of the things that I get excited about are not so much specific to marketing right now. It's more of like, it's like there are so many meetings. Can I get a trans, like a transcription bot that we can trust at like larger, like public companies that can just like follow me around meeting to meeting? And, and this already exists, but it's like kind of tiny startups. You have to be careful with the larger company legal stuff. Um, It'll just make like, and so I, I think about that for marketing too, right? Like everyday marketers, if they don't have to create a brief on their own, if a little bot can follow them around and then in all these conversations, basically pull together the brief for them, imagine how much time that could save on just monotonous. Like I heard this in a meeting, I type it out, I put it in the doc. I said, you know, like there are things like that that aren't quite as like flashy on the front end, but to, like get me excited about, can we just spend less time with like this repetitive junk? And like paperwork in terms of marketing technology like specifically i feel like people will smile at this but it's just like just anything advancing the tools themselves like when you look at like speaking of software development when you look at like the marketing automation platforms in general they're just not they're not best in class in terms of like their architecture usability scalability um so anything where maybe ai could be leveraged to help those engineers kind of like fill some of those gaps and help innovate. Um, there's an interesting startup I just read about the other day. Fi I think it's fiber.ai that they're working on creating kind of like a layer over Marketo for like AI automation within Marketo. Right now it's sounding a little bit like what you mentioned, Phil, about like send time optimization, like not quite as exciting, but I'm hopeful that they'll be able to figure out like as the Marketo API, as they learn it more, like maybe more use cases that they can do around like content creation, date, like any data analysis would be fantastic. They'll just like plug and play, that kind of thing. Um, I, I think there's so much green space there in general.
Yeah, super cool. You mentioned Fiber.ai. I was actually on their site uh, last week. They're uh, a YC batch, uh, summer 23. Uh, my co-founders are big YC fans and they're just like, hey, like, here's this AI tool. Can we use this? And we're, we're B2C and it's like a, a bit more like B2B, like cold outbound prospecting. Like they do prospecting for you and then they use gen ai to like write your prospecting emails but it like it sits on top as a layer like you said for for your map yeah it's, it's hard to keep up with with all these tools that that are coming out there we did like a full super deep dive on a lot of those and i've been chatting with folks that have been doing ai for a long time like i um have discovered and and, and super excited about this space there sorry jt cut you off hey sorry can i have one on ai i want to emphasize like a lot of like, for example, the outbounding kind of like conversational AI stuff has been out there for a while now, but now granted it's better with things like chat GPT, like AI itself has come a long way since then, but I would emphasize like two things. Number one, it's not set it and forget it. Like that was a mistake that a previous company, like I, I came in on one of their implementations. They're like, it's broken. It's all wrong. It's not working. This is a real, you know, the AI is stupid. And I'm like, well, have you been giving it feedback? And they're like, well, no. And I'm like, well, you have to give it feedback. So it knows. Like, it's trying to collect its own feedback. But if you go in there and, like, spend a few hours every week just, like, telling it, nope, you didn't classify this right. You didn't, um, you know, read this correctly. Then, then that helps it become so much smarter. And then eventually you don't have to do that as much. Um, and then... Also, uh, like you mentioned, just understanding how it works in the back end, like how much involvement do I need to have in it? And then how much can I trust it too? Like a lot of AI, there's a lot of excitement, but can we trust it with our customer data? Can we trust it, especially to send an email on our behalf? Mm -hmm. Like, luckily, most companies that I've worked with in AI are pretty conservative about like they know that they're like, we're going to make it hesitate and ping you before it sends an email that like it's not sure about, like it has to have a certain level of confidence. But with some of the newer companies that I, I haven't seen yet, just be careful about like if it's like get a sense of will it send out an email to a real human being if it's not sure because if not, we want to roll that back. And make sure we train it well before we have it sending emails upsetting people. Yeah, that's great advice. I feel like in, in e-commerce, like a B2C e-commerce, there's a lot of opportunity and like less focus on like AI regulation and like trusting like what comes out of it. Like it's like shopping cart abandonment type emails or like loyalty emails, whatever. But if you work in like healthcare or like the financial industry and you're sending an email that has like PHI data in there, like that's, that's a whole different uh, ball game when it comes to just like giving the wheel to AI. But I, I've even had AI get confused about, you know, someone's politely responded being like, no, thank you. I'm not interested. And then AI has been like, oh, we're so thrilled to hear that you're interested. <laughs> scheduling a call now with our AE. And then, of course, rightfully so, people are upset, right? They like answer back, like cussing out the bot. <laughs> <laughs> it's why uh, sometimes when I see these stories of com like companies laying off their entire customer support team, to replace it with a chatbot, it, it boggles my mind because I think in a lot of ways, the winners of the AI MarTech space are going to be the ones who see this as an additive tool, not a, you know, subtract from my team so I have more budget. Like imagine, you know, I've started using uh, like voice transcription to do my to-do list and project management combined with ChatGPT. It feels like a, a superpower. And I think 
I think that'll be the end, end up being the winners. I'm curious what your think is, uh, your take is on who, who will come out and emerge from this like AI era of MarTech as the winners, like companies, teams, individuals. What attributes do you think are going to be important? That's a great question. I think companies that are open-minded, but also keep customer like trust at the forefront. Like I think it, it's a it's a delicate balance, right? Because it's like I'm a huge fan of innovation and experimentation, but not if it allows people's data to be shared inappropriately or people to get like messaging that's upsetting or distressing. Um or people even just to feel like creeped on. Like that's not mm. a good experience either. I just try to imagine myself as a customer. Like I don't want that. Um, so I think hitting that right balance of we want to experiment, but we want to do so thoughtfully. And, and I think that also really goes for the companies as well, right? Like we want to put features out there that are exciting, but not to the point where it's reckless and then it could be harmful. Um, I think I think those will be the big winners. I think what's so tricky is even with the vendors who have been working in AI for years, they constantly face that battle of we have our proprietary algorithm and we can't share how it works, but then everyone wants to know how it works, <laughs> right? Like if you're basing your business on it, they want to know what yeah. it, what's going on in the, in the background, but then they can't like give that away. Um, so I think the closer they can get to like almost open sourcing it, Mm -hmm. while also holding on to their turf. I feel like that is the answer to that. And those will be the big winners too. There, there has to be a certain amount of like trust that they have a good product. Mm -hmm. And then I guess working like legally to protect the, the turf of it that people either don't want to or can't copy it or people don't want to go to whatever the alternative vendor is, right? Like they love this vendor so much. They found success. They don't want to move. Yeah, it's a, it, it's such an interesting space, and I think you touched on a lot of interesting topics, like in terms of the soft skills. Like, I think marketers, particularly when it comes to deploying technology, like we could deploy Martech in a lot of ways, just kind of willy nilly. Like, there's not a huge consequence to deploying a a new tool, but the AI kind of changes that a little bit. The consequences get a little bit bigger. You made a recent post talking about. Um, you know, some of the soft skills that mops need, things like managing expectations, communication, planning, priority setting, and so on. So like, in terms of, you know, looking at this new era, like, what are the soft skills that are going to be evergreen? Like what, what soft skills you work on today are going to be, you know, it doesn't matter how, how awesome AI is, you're still going to be great at your job. Relationship building right out the gate is we're always going to be working early. I mean, we'll see, you never know, but I think we're always going to be working with other humans. <laughs> and humans have emotions and we're imperfect. And so you really need to learn to speak to that um, and to be able to like connect with other people and empathize uh, communication. So, and again, that's something where it's like, you're never going to be perfect, right? Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone has a misinterpretation, but learning how to speak to different audiences and the best way to speak to their like needs, desires. Um, like there's that book out there. It's like the question behind the question, like really being able to be perceptive based on communication skills. Um, and then negotiation is a huge one. Uh, I think when people think negotiation, they only think compensation and that's it. The negotiation goes for everything, right? Like we have these five initiatives within marketing ops, sales ops has these five initiatives in this like quarter or year 
And so how do we negotiate to figure out how do we fit in what's most important for the business? Um, when you talk with vendors, how do you negotiate with them, especially with AI? Because I feel like everything's just going to be like so expensive, right? Like unbelievably expensive. Um, so, so yeah, negotiation is a huge one for me too that I'm like always working on. I think when you when you go with those, those are the most important. That oh, and then uh, expectation management as well. So just managing stakeholder expectations. Yeah, I love that. Love all all three of those communication, negotiation, and and managing expectations. You actually wrote a post of a post about the the importance uh, in, in this context of priority setting when it comes, like you said, to like negotiating, like what you know makes it on this list of priority for this quarter versus next quarter. Uh, we totally agree with that stance. We did a full episode of um, marketing roadmaps and the importance of setting your own team priorities or risk letting other departments set those priorities for you. And you've actually drawn a parallel between the proactive approach of a lifeguard to prevent accidents and a marketing ops teams need to anticipate and prevent problems similarly. And you warned against the pitfalls of people pleasing all the time in operations teams. The reality is there's a finite amount of resources and time available in MOPS teams, and we can't please everyone. Um, in your experience, like what's a tactful approach to saying no to maintain team morale and, and efficiency in, in your roadmap? And have you ever used situations like this to communicate the need for an increased uh, headcount or, or resources to leadership? Yes, all the time. I like to use the yes, no, yes method. So Yes, I hear your concern, need or desire. No, I can't address it right now for whatever reason, whether it be bandwidth, um, prioritization, et cetera. But yes, I will add it to our backlog and keep it in mind. So if we do have capacity come up, that, you know, like basically like the, the last part is expressing like, yes, your needs do matter. Like I hear you, but unfortunately we can't do it, but we will keep it in mind overall. Um, and then I always really stress to marketing ops teams, Make sure that you're tracking the work that you do. So you need that roadmap, but you also need something like an Asana or Jira to track the work that's being done. So that way, as a manager, at any point, if someone comes in to the fray and they're like, hey, I need this huge thing right away, you can be like, okay, like here. And like a lot of those tools have come a long way in terms of you can kind of like do a quick report and be like, here are the top initiatives that my team is working on right now. Which one should we drop? Like which one is less important than the, the thing that you want. And that can be pretty persuasive in terms of they're like, oh, well, like I kind of wanted this, but when I see these other initiatives, like, oh, I want those a lot more. So like, okay, this one can wait. But if you don't have any kind of documentation of what's happening to show people, then that's where things fall apart because it's like, well, I'm busy. And then leadership's like busy with what? And it's like, mm -hmm. oh, well, uh, we're working on these things, but, but where is it? Like, where's the kind of um, not proof, but like, you know, uh, some kind of representation of what you're doing. Yeah, definitely agree. It's uh, a useful way to to get additional headcount. But yeah, I mean, like not all marketers are, are lucky enough to, to work on teams that, you know, business strategy partners live in this like service desk world. And it leads to like a mountain of tickets and uh, a surefire path to, to burnout. You've 
actually shared a lot about this uh, career advice specific for for folks that are in seats like this. Like you underscore the importance of prioritizing mental health and physical health over work, choosing employers who value well-being, rethinking this like always on work culture and encouraging empathetic, caring management in the workplace. Um, you know, even though for a lot of people maybe listening, like this feels like a, an idealistic scenario and, and they're kind of like, um, in a world where maybe they're they're not crossing all of those uh, barriers there, but like, how do you um, maybe deal with a coworker or a boss that's like always on and and not asynchronous in this remote world, and maybe is always picking you with disruptive like, hey, do you have five minute type Slack messages? Curious what your take is there. The first thing, honestly, is I'll just let things sit. Like I've had <laughs> situations where it's like whoever it may be right but like let's say a marketer is reaching out all the time with something that they can answer themselves usually i'll try to give them a nudge to be like hey have you tried like researching this but like in a you know polite way and then if they don't kind of get the hint then i'll just let it sit for a bit and then usually like as funny as it sounds within like an hour they'll be like oh i figured it out myself and i'm like <laughs> okay like let's keep doing this um that's more of like a, a stakeholder, right? Or someone. And when it comes to like a boss or a manager, I think that can be a little bit trickier um, in, in a better market. I mean, I've even gone as far as to say like, hey, if you if you want someone burning like the midnight candle on like a Friday, you can go find someone else. Like I've been as bold <laughs> as being like, uh, I don't need to be here, but that wasn't a better job market right so yeah. that literally was the truth <laughs> um so i wouldn't over index on something like that but um certainly in better markets you can have a like it's a little easier to hold a boundary then than it is now i would say now I, I try to express it as you know i'm a hard worker but if you have me working all the time or reacting to everything all the time then i'm just going to burn out and then it's just going to be like mediocre across the board so like, and then I'll say that for like my team as well. Like we all need to take breaks. It's literally just like the way human brains work. We cannot be on all the time unless you just want to see subpar burnt out people. All and, and no one wants that, right? Like even if you're like something feels urgent, it's not mo like most leadership who has a clue is going to be like, okay, like I feel like this is urgent, but I can't burn out the team to get it. Yeah, I think there's some some really fascinating things in there for folks. And I think one thing with marketing operations, which at least in my experience has been has been mostly true, is that a lot of folks in the organization don't have a deep understanding of what's happening in marketing operations. So there's almost like this veil, right? And you've talked about communications, managing expectations. And I think a lot of our jobs in marketing operations is to lift that veil and show, yeah, you know, I'll do your do the things that you want, but it takes time, resources, smarts, intelligence. But you also touched on some really interesting things that I want to pull up for the audience and and maybe just have you summarize some of your thoughts here. But I kind of have the sense that when when you're as a leader in MOPS, your job is in some sense to create this micro environment, right? This environment that works with all these other different departments, that service is a, a lot of ways is a service department, but you also have your own roadmap and ambitions because you know, you know, handling all these fire fires that happen, you want a good foundation. How as a leader, or maybe even as an individual contributor on a team, how do you go about fostering this like really positive environment marketing operations that you, we've been describing? 
as a leader, a lot of it is like we, we call it wearing a flak jacket. So it's like all the chaos is happening. People are throwing everything and screaming, but it's like you kind of are just over the team. Like, it's going to be okay, everybody. Like just trying to save them from the noise of it all so they can focus on actually getting things done and like knowing what their priorities are, um, which, which like takes a lot, right? Like just absorbing all the craziness. Um, in terms of an individual contributor, like, I think it really is a team effort. It's like the leader can try to set the tone and set an example and wear that flak jacket. But I think a lot of it comes down to interactions within the team as well. Like I'll, I'll even say like when I was an IC, just knowing that my team had my back was a huge difference maker. And that set the tone for everyone else where it was like if someone was feeling burnt out, they could take, you know, like a, a day off or take some t- time away without feeling like, you know, they were harming the team or that something bad was going to happen. Um, you know, if someone made a mistake, it was not like an annihilation activity of like everyone point their fingers. It was like, how do we help? How do we fix it? Um, so I like even within like my team now, it's like I feel so lucky that the just the vibe is so good. But a lot of it is not like it's it, I don't think I think we sometimes we give leadership too much credit. I, I think a lot of it has to just do with how are the team, like different team members interacting with each other? Do they trust each other? Do they like working together? Do we just try to have fun together and make it the best environment that we can? Love it. Love the the cover fire uh, analogy there. Totally relate. Um, this idea of like letting your team focus on their list of priorities and not be too bogged down with like the, the noise that that's happening around you. It's Super great advice, Sarah. Um, you you've provided so much good for for the marketing ops community uh, over uh, like the nuggets of wisdom that that, that you're sharing on social. Um, you know, on top of that, like the pro bono consulting that I know you do for for nonprofits, uh, the endless free Slack and, and LinkedIn answers from folks just reaching out with messages. Uh, I know I've been guilty of that a, a few times myself. Um, you also have the huge salary survey. You're mentoring folks, career coaching. You also ha- had a podcast. Um, now you're also building a course and, and I want to take a bit of time to, to chat about that. I know uh, it, it's taking quite a bit of your time. Uh, talk to us about like the journey of, of building the course, the content, the MarTech and and when can marketers get their hands on it? Do you have a timeline yet? Yeah, it's it's been a really interesting challenge in the sense that like I, I feel like people don't talk about, well, it's like simultaneously people don't talk about imposter syndrome enough, but then also talk about it too much. I feel like in surface <laughs> level ways, um, but it's, it, it really has come out for me and building the course. Like I just sit there and I'm like, I just, I want to like, my goal is building the course that I wish that I had trying to get into the marketing operations world and growing my career. But it's so hard to sit there and be like, is this what's going to help everyone else? Is this what people will be expecting? Um, so I've spent a lot of time just trying to hone in on that, like talking with different members of the community, getting a sense of what they feel like is missing out there that they just can't find any resources about. Um, and in terms of timelines, uh, hopefully really soon, I'm, I'm going to give Phil you a link that maybe we can link out to. Um, that people can sign, like just show interest. And, and when I release it, they'll have like first access to it, but hopefully soon. But uh, again, I have to like, just super, maybe overly transparently, I have to walk myself off of the ledge of like, 
trying to make it perfect. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Yeah, I would love a link. Uh, we'll help you uh, build some buzz around it and uh, create a wait list or, or whatever. Yeah, happy to to support you there myself selfishly. Like, uh, I know you've like pulled the audience a little bit to like figure out like the format and, and some of the content there. So yeah, excited to see what you cook. I'm sure like what you have already right now is better than anything in, in the market. So yeah, excited to get my hands on it and share it with some listeners. So one question we ask all of our guests, uh, the last question um, for our episode here, you're a team lead, a keynote speaker, a mentor, a nonprofit volunteer, an advisory board member, a mental health advocate, a career, a career coach, a gift specialist. You've got a lot going on. How do you remain happy and successful in your career? How do you strike that balance in your personal life and your professional life? Yeah, I would say a lot of it is just carving out time for fun. I know that sounds kind of like very, I don't know, light or very like high level answer, but I just try to make sure that I always have time to do really fun stuff that gets me excited. So whether it's like with friends, family, new experiences, like travel, like whatever it may be at the time. Um, And then also just like giving back brings me a lot of joy, honestly. Like it is, it was interesting with the course because I was like, I, well, well, first of all, I was like, I'm doing a lot. So do I have time to do this? And then I kind of put feelers out there. I'm like, would there be interest? Like, would people find this valuable? And there was this one fellow who reached out to me who like almost brought me to tears. He wrote like such a nice note being like, you know, I work in construction and like, I want to provide more for my family. And I know that marketing operations is a lucrative career path. And, you know, like I like, please let me know when your course gets released, because I really want to figure out how to break into the industry and everything is all just about the tools. And he's like, I can learn the tools, but how do I like build the confidence to, you know, interview and get like that first job and, and things like that are just super motivating for me, like being able to make an impact and just hearing like that I'm helping other people. So I would say a combination of all those things. It's like always make time for just fun and like silly stuff. Like I love reality television. Everyone always laughs, laughs, but it's like every every day I work in such like serious stuff that can be very technical. And it's like, I just want to turn on like Love Island and be extremely stupid. Like, <laughs> so just, yeah, always finding a way to laugh and enjoy and, and make an impact. Love it. Super powerful answer. Yeah, definitely relate with the, the giving back and uh, taking time to just like chill and, and unwind from always being uh, super deep in MarTech and remembering that like there's there's humans behind all that tech and we need time to to break as well. Sarah, thanks so much for your time. This has been super valuable. I'm sure listeners really loved our conversation. Um, you know, aside from the course that uh, hopefully we'll be able to, to tease out to the audience, uh, anything else you want to plug for the listeners? I would say just connecting on LinkedIn. Like I love just chatting with people, seeing what other people post and like commenting and just, I, I learned so much from everyone, like in all the Slack communities that are out there too. Like maybe we can link to some of those for the audience. But I mean, I've become 10 times the marketing operations professional that I was before I joined all of those communities. So just connecting in general, like wherever people are, whether it's LinkedIn, the Slack communities, um, the course, I'm going to have some office hours as well with that. So I'm in a lot of places. I'm also on Twitter, as you mentioned. So I would just love to connect with people in general, wherever they are. Awesome. We'll do, we'll, uh, we'll share all those links 
Thanks again, Sarah. This is super fun. Really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me.